This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Today we're taking a few minutes to talk with a chief who's been around the block a few times, having served as chief for four urban area fire departments. Chief Otto Drozd, who was elected to serve on the board of the International Association of Fire Chiefs in 2018, had also served for 23 years with the City of Hialeah Fire uh, Department in Florida, serving those last seven years as fire chief. Chief Droz then went on to serve as fire chief in El Paso, Texas, Orange County, Florida, and most recently in the Seminole County, Florida Fire Department, uh, before then being selected in t- December 2021 to serve as the executive secretary of the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs section, a section of both the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the National Fire Protection Association. Chief Droz holds a bachelor's and a master's and is a National Fire Academy Executive Fire Officer graduate and is a certified fire officer with CPSE. Chief Droz, welcome to Side Alpha Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And certainly when when I'm asked to speak about our fire service, uh, I'm more than willing to, to do that because uh, I love the people that serve, I love the mission, and I think there's a purity to it that 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 really our story needs to be told more often. Yeah, and I, and I certainly appreciate that. And, you know, we're going through, we're certainly going through a rough patch right now with uh, significant incidents. And, um, uh, you know, the, the first three weeks I know of 2022, we've, we've seen eight operational um, firefighter line of duty, line of duty deaths. And, uh, you know, on top of that, that all the injuries that go with it. So I can certainly appreciate needing to tell our story, um, not for, for purposes of anything other than making sure folks understand, uh, how dangerous this mission really is. It's not all Chicago fire, if you will. Uh, you know, everybody, uh, doesn't always make it out, uh, it, so, so pleasantly, um, but that, um, yeah, we, we definitely have a story to tell and I appreciate you being, uh, leading the forefront really and helping us tell that. Well, thank you. And, and certainly, you know, when, you know, over the course of all our careers, we, we often hear, well, we don't have fires, uh, anymore. Well, if this past, uh, the, if the beginning of this year has taught us anything is that those fires are happening, uh, they're dangerous uh, not only to the firefighters, but the citizens uh, we serve. Uh, and in fact, I was recently on a phone call with our new U.S. Fire Administrator, Dr. Lori Moore-Merrill, and she highlighted data from the U.S. Fire Administration that showed in the month of January, and we're not even completely done with that month, uh, there was 125 deaths associated with fires across the country. Yeah, and that's crazy. I mean, let, let's face it, that's that's crazy in 2022 that we're still talking about that. And yeah, I get it. it it's dangerous uh, in, um, profession, but as much community risk reduction work as we've done across this country, uh, you know, I, I, I penned a piece that uh, I've taken a little bit of flack for it, but that's okay. That's, you know, I got those big shoulders, right? Um, I, I penned a piece about how uh, community risk reduction has taken a backseat to COVID. And 
I'm not saying that's the only reason things are the way they are, but I think it's a big reason. Uh, people were used to seeing us in their face, uh, being out there all the time. You know, they're kind of those repetitive mes- uh, messages that become repetitive action on people's parts. And for the last two years, we really haven't been out there. We've been sequestered like everybody else. And I think there's something to be said for getting ourselves back out there and getting back out into the community. No, and I agree. And and one of the things that that I focused on as fire chief uh, in the midst of COVID, uh, I would tell the troops, I, I would go, look, COVID is changing the way we do some things, but it shouldn't change who we are and the mission that we have to protect the community. And so while some of these things uh, may be easy to sh- to shut down, uh, we, we have to ask our, ourselves that question as leaders of the fire service. Should we be shutting them down or should we find a way to adapt and continue to provide that type of service, especially on the community risk reduction side, which is so important? And, and I think today more than ever, we're seeing that, uh, that the answer is we need to figure out a way, even in the midst of a, a worldwide pandemic, on how to deliver those services that are needed by our communities across the globe. Absolutely. And and it's not a political statement in any way whatsoever. I, I appreciate you saying it. Um, but it is not a political statement for those that are listening in any way whatsoever to take a side of mask or no mask or distancing or not distancing or any of that crap. This is not about that. This is about us as a fire service being out there and doing the things that we know are right within our communities to make for safer communities. So I appreciate you um, helping us lead that discussion, Chief. And, you know, you've been uh, chief in in four good-sized departments. Um, You know, most uh, bulk of your career down there in uh, Hialeah, Florida, and then uh, on to El Paso, Texas, then Orange County and Seminole County, Florida. So can you can you talk about some of the challenges of managing large departments? And also, if you can talk about, um, you know, how that differs from state to state, because I think some people think, oh, we got national standards, we've got this, we've got that. There really are differences from state to state in a lot of areas uh, that I've experienced myself. So can you talk about some of the challenges of managing large departments and, and how the, you know, the states make a difference too? Sure. Uh, I think that's that's a great question because, you know, even within uh, any department that that we've served in, uh, we, we talk about, well, from shift to shift, the department <laughs> could look slightly different. So yep. from department to department and certainly across states, uh, there's wide differences. But as the leader in each one of those organizations where where I tried to focus my efforts while we were different, uh, you know, we could probably take a good percentage of what we do as a fire service and really focus on those things that unite us rather than those that divide us. Uh, And that was really the crux of my focus. But, you know, having uh, come into the service as a a very young fire chief uh, in my original department, uh, I I adapted to, to that atmosphere. And then really, that's all I knew. Uh, but through being able to participate in uh, different programs that were offered uh, through the fire service, I got to get uh, more of a broad spectrum of who we are, uh, not only in the state, but across the nation. And so that, I believe, helped me when I went to to Texas, because each uh, organization, each city, each region has its own rhythm. 
And, and while many of the things are, are the same, uh, we, we need to kind of tap into what are those driving mechanisms behind uh, each department and what do they hold dear to themselves. And, and the thing that I like to tell uh, chiefs uh, that that are moving up the ranks and that are assuming the leadership roles within departments especially those that are moving to new organizations what i tell them is uh, even though you may think that the department you came from was doing it a hundred percent right you cannot discount the patch that those folks wear on their shoulder uh, and all of the history that they have there that got them them to that time and place so it's really the ability to tap into those those norms that, that they hold near and dear and, and really leverage those to make the changes uh, that, that you see as being beneficial to each one of those organizations. Right. And, and I think you, you kind of uh, alluded to it that, uh, you know, and I said in a recent class that, it, that I did talking to those chiefs and to aspiring chiefs that were in the room, I said, none of us know it all whatever it is. And, you know, that needs to be the first thing you understand as you as you continue to build through the ranks. You don't know it all. And neither does, you know, frankly, neither does the next person. The collective of our fire service is what gets us through. And you you hit it on the head when you said you can't discount what those people know, even if you have attained that rank of chief and you're moving over to another department to be chief there. That culture, that environment is completely different, is likely completely different from point A to point B. That's right. And, and you could make an impact. Uh, and I like to believe that I have made an impact uh, everywhere that I've been. Uh, but the way you go about it may be slightly different in each organization uh, because uh, people respond to, uh, to different things depending on the culture of the organization, uh, the the culture of the people within the organization. I I had the the advantage of of having worked in the the early portion of my career in majority minority uh, departments. And, and while in South Florida the majority was uh, Cuban Americans, uh, when I went to El Paso, which many people would think, well, they're they're, they're Hispanic as well, but they're Mexican Americans, which are totally different in some of their cultural aspects, yeah. uh, but each have uh, their own norms. Uh, I think that can be leveraged uh, to really push an organization forward and encourage them uh, to, uh, to to really reach uh, things that they didn't think were obtainable. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, without saying the word, you mentioned diversity as an issue and a challenge, really. What other challenges have you uh, seen going from department to department um, towards, you know, leading people to where they need to be. Well, any other challenges that you can uh, kind of share with the readers and how you either got around them or how you solved them? Sure. I, I think, you know, the, the greatest challenge for, for a leader of a large organization is, is really uh, changing the mindset of folks on on what they can achieve. You know, my job, I always saw it as um, not only leading and having a vision for the department, which really should be a shared vision, uh, but showing them what they're capable of. You know, and, and a lot of times, you know, the members of the department don't, 
don't see that capability within them themselves sometimes. And, and I'll give you an example. So when when I went to Orange County, they were an ISO class four department. And uh, I went in there and in Hialeah, we were an ISO class one. Uh, in El Paso, we we had recently got re-rated as an ISO class one. So when I went to Orange County, I was like, well, where are we at with ISO? And they were like, well, chief, we're an ISO class four. You know, uh, an ISO class one is out of the out of the question. Yeah. And, and I and I told them, I go, I go, nothing is out of the question. Nothing is off the board. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, we're going to make every effort to, to get there. And if we get rated tomorrow and we get something less than a one, we'll go back to work the very next day. And initially they thought that that was an an unattainable goal. Uh, but really, the, the way I like to do things is put processes in place uh, and do things prospectively rather than trying to recreate things that were done in the past. And, and so we were successful in that endeavor. And I think that was, you know, that's one of the only county departments uh, at the time and one of the very few even to this day that achieved an ISO class one. And it was really a credit uh, to the folks that were in that organization that really took up the mantle. Uh, and the only thing I did was give them the belief that they could get there. Yeah, no, and I I, I share your, your passion for that rating. And, you know, I, I tell you the, the quick experience with me in Florida here was coming to a jurisdiction where there were um, 10 independent volunteer organizations in no county um, uh, organization. And, and the mission was to meld all that into one. And each of those VFDs within the county had their own ISO rating. Uh, and none of them were uh, higher than a four. So the, um, the one of the first things we undertook after the organizational changes that occurred to to form the county department and you know to bring everybody under one uh, was that new ISO rating, and boy was that a uh, wake-up call for a lot of folks, including politicians that didn't understand um, how widely ISO was accepted. In fact, ICMA and some other organizations have have uh, fed, I think, politicians uh, a line that says ISO is not important. And you and I both know ISO is important. And I think most of our listeners know ISO is important. It's just a matter of how you get there. And I think it's great, uh, you know, sharing that individual possibility and uh, individual beliefs with the organization and allowing them to move that needle forward um, is fantastic. So, I mean, that's something that uh, I hope a lot of our listeners take away is is how important ISO as an individual uh, uh, tool of management and not only helps build uh, credit accreditation essentially within your organization, but it helps make for safer communities and and yes, can save your citizens dollars uh, in lower insurance premiums. So, you know, really important stuff for our communities. Yeah, and, and to me, you know, it's you know to to me it's the the process of getting there uh that that i really enjoy because you know you see people mature w- within the process you see uh folks within the organization uh you give them uh certain sections of things 
uh, to do or certain tasks, uh, and they grow into to leaders in their own right. And, and so to me, whether it be ISO or accreditation or any of those other achievements that departments seek, uh, the, the value isn't in the achievement uh, for me. For me, it's in developing the people uh, that are able to get you there. Yeah, it's the it's it's essentially the hunt. Um, that's right. That, yeah, that's what uh, that, that's what hunters thrive on, if you will. Uh, and in this case, chiefs thrive on the leadership that comes with that. Uh, so we mentioned uh, both your accreditation with the Center for Public Safety Excellence and also just accreditation in general for um, for departments. Can you talk about the importance of accreditation, not only on a personal level, but on an organizational level? So uh, uh, certainly on, on a personal level, uh, when, you know, a, a lot of times when, when people don't understand who you are or what you're about, uh, the only thing that, that really can, can show some, some recognition for the work that you've done or the reputation that you've built are, are some of these accreditations, some of the degrees, uh, some of those other things. Now, that's not the only sign or, or value that we bring uh, to organizations because I've known a lot of great firefighters, a lot of great officers that didn't have any of those things. However, it is a sign. It, it is an external view of who you are as an individual. Uh, and certainly that lends uh, some credibility. Now, likewise, for an organization, you may be the best fire department in the world, but nobody knows it. Uh, and so that third party validation, whether it be through ISO or accreditation across all the different things uh, that you do uh, is important. And, and it's not it's even with accreditation, it's about the journey. Uh, and so it's really look taking an internal look at all of those processes whether it be in special ops whether it be in human resources uh, the way that you interact with with your folks uh, or any of your other programs it, it's really taking that internal look and seeing what best practice is and in some cases what you're going to find you're doing it exactly right and in other cases uh, it's going to give you the impetus uh, to strive to to up your level of service, and it may even give you, as a leader within these organizations or as a union member, it may give you the impetus uh, to, to bring that uh, to those decision makers within your communities uh, to, to really shine a light on what the gaps are in this provision of service. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and you're right, all developmental tools, uh, you know, only as good as the the you know the whole is only as good as the as the sum of the parts and in this case the firefighters get invested in um, uh, in the work that uh, the officers are setting forth to be able to document the all of the processes and the things that go into accreditation or ISO rating and seeing those people develop um, is a rewarding process and I certainly too can appreciate uh, the the comment and the the statement that you know, CPSE as an organization or accreditation as a thing is not necessarily the only um, sign of success or uh, a required sign of success. And and I'm one of those uh, in full disclosure that is uh, did not follow that CPSE background. I, I started it at one point, just didn't get to that before I moved on. 
so it's um, it's important, but it's not the end all be all. And I think you're you're absolutely right. You might be the best fire department in the world, but it, maybe nobody knows it. And um, going through that process helps you develop that and and shine the light on your organization. So that's good stuff. Thanks. Yeah. And, and you know, the the other thing that I think goes along with that is really uh, <clears throat> how do we talk about ourselves as a fire service and how do we uh, express that to the community? So one of the things over my career that I've been you know, very focused on is that community outreach piece and, and how we're telling our stories. And, and the way I look at that is it's really uh, two pieces. We have the external marketing, which most departments try to do, and, and that's to the community. And then uh, it's also the internal marketing uh, to our own folks and, and really letting them realize how good they actually are. Uh, and and how professional they are within the work that they're doing and the service that they're providing within their communities. Uh, so over the course of my career across all of the departments, I've been more and more focused on that public information piece because I believe that public information piece is critical uh, not only to gaining community support, uh, but I believe for departments, uh, I always tell my my folks, I go, with a good public information office, you can make an ant look like an elephant and an mm-hmm. elephant look like a whale. And yeah. I told them I always wanted to be the whale in the room. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you, your, um, your PIO or that office can make or break you. Uh, and it, absolutely an important piece of telling your story, but it's also up to that chief to, um, to set the tone towards telling that story. Uh, and and make sure that uh, you've put people on that right path. So um, so good stuff there. So chief, let's talk about your work uh, with. Uh, first, we'll talk about your work with the National Fire Protection Association on NFPA 3000. Um, while I, I recognize you were doing that as while you were fire chief, uh, NFPA 3000 is the standard uh, for an active shooter hostile environment response, so otherwise uh, called ASHER. Uh, as far as a program, an acronym I don't hear too many people use, but that's what it is. Can you talk to us about NFPA 3000? And um, I specifically like people to understand the depth and breadth that went into developing it from a a perspective of the types of agencies that were involved and then what it means for them. Yeah, so I I was in some would say the unfortunate uh, position of, you know, when when I was with Orange County Fire Rescue, we were the largest mutual aid responder to the Pulse incident, which at the time uh, was the deadliest incident uh, in the United States, the deadliest active shooter. and so what had been happening and the data supported it is that we were having more and more events and they were becoming more and more deadly uh, over the years. And so, you know, what what I looked at in the aftermath of that event was what can we be doing as a fire service just a little bit better uh, in those things that are common across all of these incidents? So we really focused on, okay, the after actions and most of the after actions always cited, okay, incident command. There was no unified command or it was used sparingly. Uh, the communications on scene were were a problem. 
some of the equipment, uh, the training, uh, the coordination between the different entities that that respond to an active shooter. Uh, so when, when I looked at that, I was like, well, what can we do better? And, you know, of course, within the fire service, we have uh, a standards making process and the people that do that is NFPA. Uh, mm -hmm. So I petitioned uh, NFPA. Uh, I petitioned them. But before I petitioned them, I, I really talked about this with the U.S. Fire Administration, uh, folks from the IFC, from the Metro Chiefs. Uh, and to really kind of gain a consensus, because if you remember back in 2012, uh, while all these incidents or 2016, when these incidents were proliferating, uh, everybody uh, that had an acronym to their name was putting out some type of best practice yep. or guidance or model procedures for, for dealing with active shooter or hostile event response. Uh, so what, what I really wanted to do was consolidate that into one standard, uh, and I thought the best place for that was NFPA, and they, they accepted uh, the proposal and built NFPA 3000. But this was a kind of a unique standard from the perspective that uh, for the first time, while NFPA standards were more fire-centric, uh, this was going to be a cross-functional team. And uh, I really have to credit NFPA and our president and CEO, Jim Pauley, uh, and the Standards Council uh, for really taking the position that, okay, if we're going to take this on, then we have to bring people in that sometimes uh, from industries that we may not have worked with closely, uh, but they brought in law enforcement from the local, state, and federal levels. They brought in third service EMS from the state, local, state, local, and federal, as well as the labor unions for all of these. So when we talk about a cross-functional team, there was law enforcement, there was EM from all of those levels, there was single service fire service, there was, you know, EMS-based fire service, uh, there was the volunteers that played a large role that play a large role within our fire service. So, so we had a broad spectrum, of, broad spectrum of folks that, as you know, many times uh, we can't even agree on calling one thing the same color. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and so, and that was in fact that the case when we had our first meeting. I remember it clearly. We had about 50 folks and NFPA 3000 is one of the largest, if not the largest uh, technical committee that NFPA has. And it's up to about 70 people now. Yeah. And so uh, when those folks got together for the first day, the first 40 minutes of the first day, we were arguing on, about what to call the standard. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I kind of got up and, and I go, okay, well, let's build it first and we can argue about what to call it later. So uh, th those folks all did yeoman's work in, in putting that together in record time. And, and the reason it was put together as a provisional standard and in record time by all those uh, disparate agencies that came together was because there was a need uh, and, and that need was acute and we're still seeing that play out today. Yeah, and, and the standard really has uh, grown legs and 
I don't know that it's yet institutionalized in organizations, but at least it's known. And like you said, having that expand into law enforcement agencies, especially, and um, all of the different service agencies that we work with, it was huge, right? To, to have them uh, not only engaged in the process to develop an FPA 3000, uh, but having them buy into the importance of, uh, oh my God, working together. Yeah, and it, it was very strategic in the way that we built that group as well, because we had uh, the, the major, the major police chiefs uh, organizations, uh, the International Association of Police Chiefs. Uh, so we had all of the organizations and all of the the different levels. And, and I can tell you to this day, there's still disagreement on the committee, but we're looking for. Uh, we always look to find that common ground uh, that's going to be beneficial to, to all of our communities. And, and certainly for uh, the fire service, uh, it gives chief officers within organizations the ability to point to something to say, this is what we should be doing. Uh, and then they can go out and get the resources that they need to yeah. do it. Yeah, uh, an, an important uh Important standard for sure for, for folks to look at, and I know there's a lot of important work that NFPA is doing, um, things coming up with respect to um, how uh, fire departments are looked at and a lot of different pieces that people need to pay attention to, and, and I think you'll be uniquely poised, if you will, or positioned to help us uh, follow that, um, and that leads me right into your uh, your new role uh, appointed in December of 2021 uh, to be the executive secretary for the Metro uh, Metro Fire Chiefs section of uh, both NFPA and IFA, IAFC. Uh, so congratulations to that, by the way. And I look forward to continuing to work with you in that organization. I've been a member for uh, about 10 years now of Metro Chiefs. Uh, which is a fairly unique organization in, in that it's uh, larger departments uh, where the decision makers come to the table and uh, and then continue to allow those who served to be a member of the organization and continue to contribute. So um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about your appointment there and, and what being the executive secretary is going to m- mean both for you and um, kind of look forward for what the organization can look forward to under your uh, your assistance and leadership. Yeah, and thank you for the question. And you know, certainly, you know, it's an honor to have been selected to to be the executive secretary uh, of the Metro Chiefs. And you know, the the person that was there, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Russ Sanders, who was the executive secretary. Who? Yeah. Who? No. So we and and uh, before you go on, you're right, because um, I I want to make sure that I don't forget Russ. Uh, none of us will ever forget Russ. Right. Uh, but we had. Um, Russ Sanders and Jim Pauley as a guest um, about six, seven months ago, and okay. maybe a little bit longer. And uh, great, great guy. Uh, of course, a great organization in NFPA. And um, you, you will, I will go out on a limb and say you're, you're not filling his shoes. You, you won't be able to do that. You're starting out with your own shoes. No, absolutely. And and he's, uh, you know, he's been a part of the Metro for 25 years after re- retiring from uh, the Louisville Fire Department. Yeah. Uh, and uh, th- did such a great job. And, you know, to me, I've 
always had such an allegiance uh, to the Metro uh, that, you know, I, I really didn't know what it would look like without Russ being part of it, you know. And, and so when it was announced that that he was going to retire, uh, you know, I had had conversations with different folks. And, you know, at first, you know, I, I was happy where I was at in, in Seminole County. And, you know, we had things going really well there. Uh, but I I do have, you know, the, the Metro holds a, a special place in my heart. And, uh, you know, at first I did not apply for the position. And in fact, you know, I, I was talking to some folks and at first hardly anybody applied for the position. Right. And I think part of it was that Russ wrote his job description honestly about all the things that he does. And I was, you know, I looked at it and it was kind of one of those fight or flight type moments that I was like, well, I don't know if I could do that, but I'm going to do, you know, what I can do. Russ had, you know, certain things that that he did really well and we'll, we'll always have him there, uh, but I'm going to try to to build upon certainly what he did uh, with the Metro. And, and the reason I, I love the Metro so much is that uh, it's a smaller organization that's made up of the largest departments, uh, not only uh, in the United States and Canada, but we have associations around the world. And, uh, you know, I kind of call it a, a concierge type of association because it's just the fire chiefs. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a safe space for the fire chiefs to, to really come together and, and really discuss those pertinent issues uh, that are really uh happening within large communities across the world and build solutions and put out position papers. And what I like to tell folks about the Metro is if you look at large departments in in any state, any county or community, a lot of times uh, just through the, the sheer numbers uh, that they command, uh, a lot of the initiatives that, that happen at those larger departments uh, are kind of bellwethers for what's going to be happening within the area. And the Metro, uh, I believe, is that. So what happens at the Metro, uh, a lot of times the Metros do it first and then uh, people start modifying and building upon that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I uh, couldn't agree with you more. I tell folks all the time, you know, it's chiefs who might be on the fence of whether they're going to join Metro. And, and there are certain parameters. You know, have to have a certain number of employees and, um, you know, those those parameters, those chiefs know. And I tell them uh, that the ones that might be on the fence, I said, you know, all the conferences that you go to are important. And, you know, I don't mind naming them, FDIC, FRI, Firehouse, uh, Fire Rescue East here on the East Coast. Um, you know, all of those different conferences are important. And the section conferences of IAFC, they're all important. But the one conference that I credit with helping me more as a chief and broadening my horizons more and giving me more of a, a true picture of what it was going to take is the Metro. Uh, that organization um, and that conference is by far, uh, or has been for me at least, by far the most uh, impactful of conferences that I could be a member of. So if you're a fire department who uh, qualifies to be a part of the Metro I wholeheartedly encourage you to join. And you have the uh, executive secretary here on Side Alpha Podcast right now. Um, certainly, uh, how, folks, 
if if chiefs want to try to get a hold of you, uh, Chief Droz, is the, uh, what is your NFPA email that they could uh, that they could send to? Sure, it's O Drozd D R O Z D at NFPA dot org, and I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, they have on the metro. And, and I'd just like to follow up on something that you said on, on the impact of going to those conferences. Uh, and and it's not just that the the largest departments are represented, although they are. Uh, you also have a breadth of knowledge at those at those conferences because uh, the metro has a classification that's called senior chiefs and those are for the retired chiefs of some of those large organizations that continue uh, to contribute to our fire service and and if you look amongst the the metro chiefs at any of our meetings you'll see former u.s fire administrators uh, you'll see department heads of the largest fire departments uh, in this country and the world that still attend even after retirement. Uh, You'll see authors of many fire service books. Uh, You'll see people that are involved uh, to to a a much, to a very high extent within our fire services and and making it uh, not only what it is today, but what it will become uh, in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, the current U.S. Fire Administrator, Dr. Laura Moore, is an honorary member of uh, the Metro Chiefs. Her work has been phenomenal for all of us, not just Metro departments, uh, but for the entire fire service in um, understanding the data and understanding the importance of data uh, in everything we do. So um, I believe it was a a couple of years ago we were honored to uh, have her appointed as an honorary member of the organization. Then, and you're right, the the breadth of knowledge and expertise in in those rooms, uh, you you cannot you you can't buy that. It it is uh, absolutely important to be a part of that organization. And for chiefs uh, that they're on the fence, I I can't encourage you any more than what you just heard. So, I, pr- I appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Chief. Is there if if you had one thing? that you could impress on firefighters who are listening in one thing what would that one thing be i would say cherish the time that you have within the fire service uh you know the the things that i like to tell people our service is so pure compared to almost any other service all it takes is in general three numbers that people have to dial in their greatest time of need and you're going to get a response. So we hold a sacred duty. And certainly if we all want the fire service to be the profession uh, that we we know it can be and should be and and continue to hold it in that high esteem uh, within each one of our communities, uh, it takes the development of the members within those organizations to continue to sustain it. Uh, so while enjoy your careers, uh, but you know, for those of us that have more time behind us than in front of us, uh, really, we, we want to, to really protect what we're doing and continue to improve the service that we provide what with in each one of our communities. Absolutely. Uh, anything else you'd like to speak about today, Chief? I think we covered uh, a lot of areas and certainly, you know, the the one thing that that I would say is I love the fire service, the, the people that are in it, and, and certainly uh the the mission and certainly those communities uh, that we serve on a daily basis. 
Absolutely. Well, Chief, thanks for being with us. And folks, uh, some takeaways real quick from today's discussion with Chief Otto Droz, uh, the Executive Secretary for the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs Association and previous fire chief. We talked about challenge, the challenges of leading fire departments uh, across two states, in his case, uh, the, the challenges of leading those organizations and how sharing individual possibilities and individual beliefs uh, of the people and, and the chief themselves within the organization and allowing those possibilities and beliefs to blossom within the organization. We talked about the importance of that. Talked about the importance of uh, ISO and CPSE as uh, tools for the organizations to not only tell their story, but to help improve their organizations. Uh, then we went on to talk about uh, NFPA 3000, the standard for an, uh, an active shooter hostile event response, specifically because Chief Joe's was the driving force, one of the driving forces behind getting that done uh, after the Pulse nightclub uh, incident and, and seeing that through, and we appreciate him having done that. Went on to talk about his appointment as the Executive Secretary for uh, Metro Chiefs of NFPA and IFC, and then he left us with uh, his uh, the, the one thing that he asked firefighters to do was to cherish your time in the fire service uh, and understand that when people call 911, they know they're going to get a response, and that's you. That's all we have time for today, folks. We've been talking with Chief Otto Droz. Thanks to Chief Droz, and thanks to our listeners for hanging in there with us. This is Mark Bayshore, Executive Editor for FireRescue1.com and FireChief.com. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care. <laughs>